Lord, thank you for this time together. And Lord, I pray that in our hearts we would not be here merely to fill our heads full of information, but rather that we would see your glory in your church and in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you would educate us and train us and equip us. And Lord, I pray that um, this education would be for the exaltation of Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for this hour, and we ask you to bless it now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay, so uh, if this, if you're here for something other than uh, ecclesiology, then uh, you may be in the wrong class. Uh, but I guess you guys kind of stick together, right, uh, the way this works, right? So ecclesiology, is that what you expected to be this hour? Okay, good. Well, let's, uh, we've, we've got less than an hour, so let me just jump right in. And if you have a question, please raise your hand, okay? Uh, and, and I say that because I'm more concerned about an- answering your questions than I am about getting my notes done. Uh, I'm going to finish on time either way, uh, but if you have a question that I can answer, I want to answer it. So feel free just to raise your hand. If I don't see any hands raised, then uh, I'll either assume that you're not charismatic um, or, or that, uh, that you don't have any questions. So please ask. I really uh, want to make sure you are learning the things that you need to learn and want to learn. Um, and uh, so here we go. You ready? So here we go. There is nothing outside the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's nothing that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love more outside the Godhead than the church of Jesus Christ. It is the crown jewel of the cosmos, especially cut to reflect and radiate the majestic light of the glory of God. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19, right? But not as loudly as the church. The mountains display the glory of God, but not as majestically as the church. And without a doubt, every living thing in creation proclaims and magnifies the glory of God. But nothing presents it with such clarity as the church of Jesus Christ. That's why the church stands alone as the most precious possession in the heart of God. I have a a seven-message series that I do every about every five years at our church called God's Most Precious Possession. It takes me seven weeks to to feel like I've, I've covered enough of it that you begin to see the glory of the church. And that's what I want you to see here today. And a lot of it's Some of it's going to be academic, but I hope your heart is tuned into this. So consider the glory of the church. The church is the only institution that Jesus promised to build. Matthew 16, 18 and through 20. It's the only people group on earth for whom the blood of Christ effectually saves. It is the only agency through which God delivers his gospel to the world. It doesn't come from any other place. And it is the only people with whom Jesus has united himself in such a manner that can only be adequately pictured as a branch connected to the vine or 
a body to its head. This is our union with Christ, and it is exclusively for His church. And so, um, that's what this lecture is going to be about. And along the way, I am going to be answering the questions for you for your exam. And are you guys working on your exam already? Good. I hope you are. Uh, don't wait. Don't push back. Don't, uh, don't try to cram it in. Uh, let me just give you a hint, a couple of hints here about the exam. Uh, when I was taking the exam, I was, uh, I was also doing the reading. Have you guys done all the reading or, or, uh, good? So I think that's good that you haven't done all of the reading yet. Um, because what I did, which was really, really helpful, was, uh, I kept a copy of both exams stuffed in my, I used it as a bookmark. Whatever book I was reading for biblical counseling, I would stick it in there and I highlighted every key, the key words for every question in the exam. And so before I picked up the book to read the next chapter, whatever that book may be, I would scan those key words just to refresh my mind on what the topics were that I should be alert to. And then when I found something by Jay Adams or whoever it was, I would uh, annotate in my printed copy, right, of the exam, I would just write like uh, 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 J.A., J. Adams, right, uh, uh, I think competent, some kind of abbreviation for competent to counsel, CTC, right? And I would put that there with a page number. And I just did that for all the books that I read. So when it came time for me to do the exam, I could just read through what I had written in the margin to tell me where, what book and what page I can find that. Now, obviously, when you're doing the theology exam, you're probably going to have a systematic theology in front of you, and that's probably the best way to do that. Um, but just a hint for how to approach this. Also... Let me, uh, let me tell you that we're going to cover three exam questions. In the theology exam, there are actually two questions about the church. And then in the counseling exam, there's one question about the church. And here they are. Uh, first of all, where's my clicker? Um, here we go. Uh, three exam questions. So the first one is a biblical description of the church. This is theology exam number 23. And then what is the role of the church, what role, uh, what is the role the church should play in the counseling process? That's theology number 24. And then in the counseling exam, uh, what role should the church, should church discipline play in, uh, biblical counseling? And that's a really important one. All three of these are really important. And at the end of this lecture, you should, uh, have a pretty good feel for, um, uh, what you're going to write or what you need to write for your exam. Now, let's begin with a definition. A definition of the church. Uh, the Greek word here is ekklesia or ecclesia, depending on how you pronounce it. And those who are called out. Uh, that's what the church means. It's not about the building. It's not about the location. It's not about the parking lot, although that nice parking lot out there is pretty nice. Um, it is about the ones that God has called to himself. If you know Jesus Christ, you're a part of that church. It refers to an assembly of professing Christians or the universal body of Jesus Christ. Now, this is important, especially for uh, the times we've been living in for the last year and a half, two years. 
Um, the church refers to uh, is referred to as the assembling of God's people. The big thing about us uh, not being able to meet as a church was that, and we started saying this among our elders and, and our people, it is impossible for us to assemble without assembling. I mean, watching the video, I mean, was something we needed to do for a little while, but you can't assemble without assembling. That's why this is a big deal for us. And that's why we would appeal to the Constitution, right, uh, that this was a problem. And then we have Grudem, uh, his systematic theology. The church is the community of all true believers of all time. This is Christ's church. And then the Reformers. For Luther and Calvin, the church was simply the community of saints, that is, the community of those who believe and are sanctified in Christ and who are joined to him as their head. This is the Reformers' position. The Reformers had a lot to say about what a church is. And we may talk about that later today. Uh, Mark Deber weighs in on this as well. Uh, when he says, The church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together by serving him in the world. And then there are metaphors for the church. And this uh, first grouping of metaphors comes from uh, the book of Ephesians specifically. If you want to find a place in the Bible that talks most about the church, it's the book of Ephesians. And we won't have time to look at all of these things. It's one of the reasons why I said, you know, I have seven sermons on this. I'm just going to click through these very quickly. But Ephesians 1.23, the church is called the body. In verse 15, there's the body. And then in verse 15, there's one new man, reference to the church, the household of God. Which and you see how these uh, correspond to the to the theology that connects with it. Like uh, his body refers to or points to organic union. Uh, one new man uh, speaks of a multi-ethnic body, right? Jews and Gentiles. Uh, the household of God speaks to our adoption. Uh, Ephesians two twenty one a holy a holy temple. This is the dwelling place of God. We collectively are the temple of the Lord. Ephesians 2.22, the dwelling place of the Spirit. Ephesians 4.4, 4, um, one body. That's corporate unity. Corporate unity. Uh, Ephesians uh, 5.31, the bride or wife. Uh, it points to the fact that she is loved and adored by Christ. It's one of the reasons that I say that the church is God's most precious possession. She is his bride, and she, he loves her. Uh, but there are other metaphors of the church. Other metaphors of the church. In uh, John 15:5, it's branches with the vine. Romans 11:17 through 24, it's the olive tree grafted in. Uh, it's uh, if, if you can kind of think of it this way. Uh, so the olive branch, the the uh, the church has been grafted in. So you can just consider that like a spiritual GMO, right? A, a spiritually genetically modified um, plant. Uh, 
um, God has cha- God has changed it by bringing the church into what He was doing previous to that. First uh, Corinthians three six through nine, it is referred to as a field of crops, pointing to its fruitfulness. Uh, let's see, is that First Peter two five? A holy priesthood uh, points to corporate worship and ministry. First Timothy three fifteen. Uh, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Uh, the, the church bears the truth. It's like if you think of a pillar, what does a pillar do? It holds something up, right? Uh, at our church, we have, uh, or if you've never been to Calvary Bible Church, um, the front of our church was designed to be very colonial. So we've got the traditional white columns. So imagine a, a column, a pillar, and it's got like a, a little podium on top of it. And, and on it is the Word of God. It is holding up before the world the Word of God. And that's what the church does. Uh, Avery Dulles writes these words, God has inspired multiple images for the church, each of which offers a different perspective, and none of which should so dominate our conception of the church that the depth and texture, texture of understanding is lost. Though all are inspired, they are not interchangeable, nor are they comprehensive in their presentation of the nature and purpose of the church. Uh, and, and I agree with that. There are reasons why God gave us so many different metaphors. There are different aspects of the church that are, that are best described differently than vine and branch or, or differently than head than body. And so God wants us, the Lord wants us to have a grasp on all of these things. Let's talk about the attributes of the church. In A.D. 381, the Council of Constantinople confirmed, affirmed that Christians believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. One holy, universal, and apostolic church. So let's look at the first one. The church is one. The church is one. And the church is one because God is one. The church is one because God is one. This designates our unity with one another in Christ. Our, our unity is a sign for the world that points to the unity of God himself. And this is why, by the way, Division in, in churches is so serious. Um, there it is. This is why division in the church is so serious. Now, I don't know about your church, but we, we make a big deal out of this. When, um, when men and women are joining our church, we have a document they have to sign, and, and they have to say that, that uh, they accept our doctrinal statement, even if they don't agree with everything. Um, uh, but the very last thing that we, we rehearse with them is this final statement that says something like, uh, we understand that we're all sinners and we're going to sin against one another. And when that happens, uh, don't call your friends who weren't there for the incident. Uh, don't get on Facebook and talk about it. Um, rather, follow the biblical pattern 
the the biblical injunction that if you have a problem with another member of the body, you go to them. You speak to them face to face and you seek to resolve it. And and I don't want to jump ahead into the into the uh, the question of discipline, but this is where discipline f- uh, falls in. And this has been such a help to our church, even as people have had um, uh, disputes and dissensions, sometimes pretty, pretty fierce. And there have been a number of times when we met with these people, and my first question is, have you talked to anybody else about that? And they look at me like kind of put out by the question, and they say, no. We intended to. We thought we would be helped if we did, but we didn't. And I would say, well, well, why didn't you? I'm glad you didn't, but why didn't you? Well, because we signed that document. You made us sign that document that we wouldn't do that. And we say, well, praise the Lord, you didn't do that. Um, we call that a comp- in counseling. We call that a, a, a complicating problem. Instead of having two sins to deal with, if they call someone else, now we have three, and now we have, and then it gets multiplied, and church splits happen, and, and all of that stuff. And so, uh, God is very serious. The Lord Jesus Christ is very serious about unity in the church because of what it communicates when we're not unified. Um, so, there is one body, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of uh, one hope that belongs to your call. Verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Notice the repeat of the number. What's the number? One. I can even climb. I mean, count that high. But one. We are one. We're this way. We're one, and this way we're one, and this way we're. Why are we one in all of these ways? Because God is trying to communicate something to us. Uh, one God, one Father of us all, who is over all and through all in and in all. In fact, you remember in John 17, Jesus prayed that his followers would have, uh, would have real unity, that we would be one. Our spiritual unity is invisible, but it becomes visible when believers share the same baptism, they partake in the same Lord's table, they look forward to sharing the same heavenly city one day when we see him face to face. All of this is so important. Okay, so that's the church is one. Let's talk about the church being holy. The church is holy. So the church is holy and is to be holy because... God is holy. So the church should be one because God is one. The church should be holy because he is holy. 1 Peter 1.15 is our key text for that. Uh, this is natural considering that we are the dwelling place of God. We are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We are holy because we have been declared holy by God in Christ. Now, what is, what is the word that defines that statement? You have been declared holy. What, what, sum that up in one word. Justified, right. You have been justified. You have been declared righteous in Christ. And because you have been declared righteous and have 
have had the Holy Spirit implanted in your hearts, you now can live righteously. You can live in a holy manner. At the same time, Christ is making us holy. So Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 is a good reference for that. John Calvin wrote these words, The Lord is daily at work in smoothing out wrinkles and cleansing spots. From this it follows that the church's holiness is not yet complete. We understand that, right? The church is holy. Then in a sense, that is the daily advancing of the church, even though it is not yet perfect. Um, We all understand that we're not perfect. Nobody has... No couple has a perfect marriage. No family has a perfect family. No church is a perfect church. No group of elders is a, is a perfect group of elders. Um, but we strive for holiness. We want to be holy because he is holy. So holiness is what separates the church from the world. Holiness is what separates the church from the world. Hence, both Old Testament and New Testament emphasizes the importance of holiness among the people of God as we, as we serve God in this world. And you know what? There's no, no time when the world needs to see this more than this time. Uh, I think the opportunities for us to talk about Christ with people, I think people are more open right now than uh, they normally are. Because things aren't as happy. Uh, There's not as much money in the bank account. It's not as easy to get the stuff that that fills you with comfort. Uh, There's there's a lot of doubt as to uh, the direction of our country and the leadership and what's happening in our government. And uh, every human being, here's a way to think about it, every human being is absolutely dependent upon God. But we rarely ever feel it. Because we've cushioned ourselves with so many comforts. And a lot of those comforts are being taken away. I just think this is, this is the time. This is our time to be faithful with the gospel. But if you're going to be faithful with the gospel, with people who know you, then you need to, to have a life that's exemplary. A life that is holy. It's holy in its righteous behavior, and it's holy in its Humility to confess its unrighteous behavior and attitudes and whatever. So let's move on to the church is not only uh, one and holy, the church is also universal. The church is universal because God is universal. Uh, By the way, I just read, was it this morning or yesterday morning? Uh, did any of you go to the uh, annual conference? Nobody? Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, but they gave us this book bag, free books, and inside was this book. And um, George Swinnick, anybody familiar with him? Uh, I wasn't. I figured with a name like that he had to be an English Puritan, and he is. Um, the name of this book is The Blessed and Boundless God. And um, so there is this uh, one chapter. One of the things I love about this book is there's the beginning of the chapter. There's the end of the chapter, (laughs) right? And uh, this is chapter four. God is universal. 
I tell you what, uh, this is, this is the sweetest, most wonderful book outside the Bible that I've read this year. And, and I'm just, I'm trying to discipline myself to only read one chapter a day. It's just that good. Uh, so I recommend that you get this. Uh, we're, we're talking now about Universal. And, uh, I don't have time to read anything in this to you, but uh, it's probably not in, in the bookstore down there. It's, it's fairly new. It's, uh, it's, uh, endorsed by Stephen Yule, so it's gotta be good, right? And, um, so the church is universal. So the church is universal because God is universal as the Lord of all the earth and the King of the ages. It is also universal in that it stretches across time and space. We saw that before, right? What is the church? It is, uh, is God's people from, from all ages. So some of the church is not here. I don't mean this room, uh, but I mean not on this planet. Uh, much of the church is already with the Lord. Um, and so the, Apostle, the Apostles' Creed affirms the Holy Catholic Church. Now, what does the word Catholic mean? Does it scandalize you? I mean, have you ever been to a, a good, solid, reformed Presbyterian church that believes mostly like we do, and they stand up in, in the beginning of the service and they they recite the Apostles' Creed, and part of it says, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I remember I was in college first time I heard that, and I thought, that's heresy. You know, what is that about? What does Catholic mean? Universal. It means universal. Uh, so when we say Holy Catholic Church, notice it's not Roman Catholic Church. It's the Holy Catholic Church. Um, and so Catholic means universal, which sheds a little bit of light on the way the Catholics view themselves. We are the true church, right? We are the only church. If you're going to be a part of Christ's church, then you have to be um, Roman Catholic and follow the Pope. And so the Apostles' Creed affirms that the church is holy, yes, but Catholic that it is universal. So Catholic simply is the old English word. If you read uh, the Puritans or any English, old English writing, uh, you may see this uh, from time to time. This is, uh, it means universal, but we say, we say universal because it's better translated uh, that way in our time. Um, and so while every true local church is part of the universal church, and is an, an entire church in itself, no local church can be said to constitute the entire universal church. Uh, now, that may be a little bit confusing. Your local church is legitimately a church if it meets certain qualifications. But on the other hand, uh, we are part of a greater thing called the church uh, the church militant, sometimes the um, uh, the Puritans used to call it. Uh, you are the living church, active in the world, right? And yet there is another aspect of the church, the full universal church of all times and all ages. It means that the church also consists of those who have already gone to their rest. So the goal of the church is to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known to the nations. 
um, we are here to make the gospel known to the to the nations. In our church, we frequently uh, will, in unison, repeat this statement, and it goes like this: We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. And part of that is that we proclaim we proclaim the gospel. But the reason we're proclaiming the gospel is because the excellencies of Christ needs to be on display in the world. We have been made in God's image to image forth something of the glory of Christ. And we do that as the church. And we do that most pointedly and most practically by uh, proclaiming the gospel. Uh Okay, so next is the church is apostolic. The apostles were established as the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20 says. They were the ones who proclaimed the gospel uh, that, that they received from Jesus. When we say the church is apostolic, we're speaking of the message rather than the men. We're speaking of the message and not so much the men. Because it was the man who delivered the message. Now, you remember your your studies in here on inspiration of Scripture, right? You had that already? And so uh, there's a similar statement about inspiration. Can anybody say what that is? So what we say about inspiration is it's not the men who were inspired. It was the words. And now that corresponds over here to the apostolic church. When we say it's an apostolic church, we're not focused on the men. We're, t- we're talking about their message. Their message is, is what's critical. And so uh, that's what a- apostolic church is. We, we hold to the gospel that was preached by the apostles. We hold to the theology taught by the apostles. Edward Clowney, uh, if you're not familiar with his name, he's written a lot of excellent books and uh, a theologian. And this is, this is what he says. To compromise the authority of Scripture is to destroy the apostolic foundation of the church. To which Robert Redman adds, the physical continuity, the physical continuity of a line of Pastor elders back to Christ's apostles is insignificant compared to the continuity between the teaching in churches today and the teaching of the apostles. Now, the reason they say that is in terms of apostolic succession is because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that from uh, that the, the current pope, whoever that may be, is a spiritual descendant of the Apostle Peter, who was the first pope. Pope, not pulp. That's what you make paper out of. But um, after, after Peter, uh, there was a succession of men. There's all kinds of problems with that, uh, especially the times in history when there were two popes or more who were all saying that they were the true pope. Um, nevertheless, only... Only with the apostolic teaching is the church the pillar and foundation of the truth. And Paul described it to Timothy in, in 
in 1 Timothy 3.15. And not only that, but we have this. What is the church? Well, uh, I don't know if you have access to this yet. You probably, you could probably just Google um, the ACBC standards of doctrine described uh, uh, in in their founding documents or their governing documents. And uh, so here's another hint that may help you: go to their doc, go to the ACBC documents and find out what they say about some of the answers to these questions, right? And then express it in, a, in, your, in your own way, but then reference the ACBC do, uh, um, uh, standards of doctrine. And your grader will go, huh, that was smart. You know, because they're not going to say you got it wrong if you're quoting out of the ACBC doc, documents. So, so the church is the bride of Christ, called to proclaim the word of God, administer baptism, and the Lord's table the Lord's Supper, and exercise discipline. Now, this is interesting. Uh, throughout the years, the church has been defined different ways. Um, but these are the four, I think, that are... A lot of times, that last one is left off. But this is what a number of the Reformers said, because they had to wrestle with, what is a real church? Because the Roman Catholics were doing it different. And, and all of the reformers were Roman Catholic, right? And, and they came out. They were trying to reform the church. They were trying to, to make it biblical. And so the whole question uh, all the time, I mean, with every issue, is, is this biblical? Is uh, uh, baptismal regeneration biblical? Is the mass biblical? Is there anything about it that's biblical? Uh, what parts of it are not biblical? Can we keep any of this? Do we eject some of it? What about worship? What about marriage? What about, you know, all of these? Is that biblical? They questioned everything. And I'm not sure they got all the answers correct. Um, and on those issues where I think uh, we get it correct that, that they didn't, I don't know, maybe humility would keep us from being too excited about that. But uh, uh, So... I lost my place on my notes here. Okay, so the church, the church is the bride of Christ, called to proclaim the word of God, administer baptism and the Lord's Supper, and to exercise discipline. So let's rehearse on what those things are. The word of God, administered, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church discipline. I think it was Martin Luther who... Uh, maybe he was the first one to add discipline. So the implication there is, if your church, uh, if your church doesn't practice discipline, then by definition it may not be a true church. Um, these, I mean, at the very least, you can say there is no ambiguity in the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18 and in. What is it? Luke 17. Um, that we are to practice church discipline. And so uh, the reformers decided, uh, if that's the case, then you don't have a real church if you're not practicing discipline. Now, of course, that that um, uh, uh, there may be extenuating circumstances, but uh, I doubt it. Uh, the church is the organism through which God accomplishes his mission in the world. 
It is the main agent for all ministry of the word, including the ministry of counseling. This is, this is a, a major turning point in this lecture right here. It is, it is God's designed vehicle for communicating the word of God. And that means it is the place for biblical counseling. Because this is what we do. We minister the word of God. So let's talk about the role of the church. Biblical counseling finds its home in the local church. Now, uh, just so you don't find out, find this out later on and be scandalized by it, this might scandalize you now. Um, but ACBC does accept um, some outside institutions that do biblical counseling outside of the uh, parameters of the local church. Um, but ACBC would also say those are the exceptions and not the rule. Um, and, and the leaders of those institutions, at least one that I know of, would say, um, we are an independent organization. They may even charge for their services, which is another thing that we tend to frown on. And we don't want to charge for the ministry of the Word of God. Um, um, but they might say, nevertheless, we are under the authority of this particular local church. We answer to their elders. The difficulty there is uh, uh, those elders oftentimes really have no idea what's going on in the counseling center. And it's, it's really hard to have oversight over something that uh, really has its own leadership. Um, so the role of the church, biblical counseling finds its home primarily in, in the local church. And, and certainly in our counseling ministry at our church, it is exclusively a ministry of the local church. And I know that to be the case here at Grace uh, Bible Church and at Grace Community Church, right? And, um, and at, uh, uh, Living Hope Bible Church and now with our latest, uh, church plant, uh, which is, um, <laughs> Keith Christensen, Christ Fellowship Bible Church, uh, all of these churches. You know, uh, one of the wonderful things we've got going on here right now, uh, pastors uh, a lot of times talk about their ministerial association where they've got different pastors from different denominations trying to have fellowship with one another, which is really, really hard to do when they're... um, when uh, their theology is so different. And yet, uh, it, it's really sweet here because we didn't intend for this to happen, but the Lord has created this unity among five or is it six churches now, and all of us pastors come together here, right, to work together to bring the Word of God to bear, to train people in the ministry of the Word of God, and it's wonderful. Next year, it'll be at our church, and, and all of those pastors will convene at our at our church. And most of the men who do the teaching here in this biblical training center, which is both of our churches, most of the trainers um, are pastors or associate pastors with one of our church churches. Where's Living Hope? Living Hope is our newest church plant, and it's in Lake Worth. Yeah. So just uh, a little northeast, uh, northwest of uh, Lake Worth. 
Lake Worth the Lake. Uh, but it's also a, a town as well. So counseling is really nothing but the ministry of the word. Um, the church is the place where counseling will most meaningfully happen. Paul describes the church as the household of God. Here we go. Uh, Paul describes the church as the household of God and the pillar, that which upholds the truth. And, and certainly that's what we do. Heath Lambert explains, if counseling is grounded in our understanding of the truth, and the truth is rightly upheld in the context of the church, then counseling finds a real home in the local church. So biblical counseling is the normal ministry of the church. This is one of the things we're passionate about, is trying to help elders and pastors, which are technically the same thing, but when we... When we build relationships with these men, we try to help them see that this is the normal ministry. This is normal for pastoral ministry to be involved in biblical counseling because it is the ministry of the word. Jesus, for some people this is scandalous, but Jesus was a preacher and a counselor. Jesus was a Bible teacher who sent, who spent far more time counseling the word than preaching the word. We could say the same thing about the the Apostle Paul. Paul was a preacher and a counselor. He was a minister of the word who both preached and counseled. He told the elders of Ephesus, listen to these words, right? See if this sounds like biblical counseling. I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Now, we don't physically go to people's homes to counsel them. Uh, typically, they they come to our church, and we meet in the Sunday school classroom, or we meet in my office, or they meet wherever they're going to meet. But um, but this was normal. This is the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul will later say, uh, "Well, I, I won't preempt it here in in Acts uh, uh, twenty, but um, well, maybe I will a little bit." He says. Uh, remember that I admonished, uh, admonished you with tears, every one of you. This was Paul speaking to each person, going, you know, meeting with each household as he had opportunity, ministering, correcting, encouraging, training, teaching, everything. So Paul was both a teacher and a counselor. Uh, modern pastors and elders are called to preach and counsel. And those who are not gifted to preach must be able to minister the word effectively, just the same. This is one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. This is where we see the qualification for elders and deacons. Um, and by the way, there is a, I often tell men, listen, uh, the, uh, the qualification for being an elder is not gifted to teach. It is apt to teach. Uh, you've got to be able to communicate to people the truth of God in a way that they can accept it and, and understand it. And if you can do that, you don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be gifted as one who uh, does public speaking. But if you're apt to teach, you may. That, that's one of the qualifications. And uh, we have a 
a training ministry that we do on Sunday nights, three hours every Sunday night, and we have a meal together, and it's really intense on these guys. There's only uh, seven of them now in there. Um, but it was a joy for me last week to publicly declare, after one of the guys uh, taught for like the third time in his life, uh, and, and, and each time he teaches, he's better at it. And, uh, and I just had the joy of saying, hey, can everybody just listen to me for a second? I just want to say something about this brother. And he turned and he looked at me and I said, brother, I, I have concluded that you are apt to teach. You are really good. Now, whether he's gifted to teach or not, that will make itself known as we go. You know, but we're looking for elders, right? We're looking for men who are apt to teach. But teaching isn't something that necessarily happens behind a podium like this one. It's something that happens one-on-one, or maybe you're, you're, you're counseling a, a couple or, or a family, or, or maybe you're, you're doing some other kind of discipleship work. But modern pastors and elders are called to do these things. All believers, in addition, all believers are called to counsel one another. It's the role of the pastor-teacher in the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. And so here's how, how it should work. The local church will say this is a church, right? And right now you're listening to me preach a sermon, right? When I'm done preaching the sermon, what happens in a solid biblical church? What happens when, when the preaching stops? Uh, everybody goes to lunch. <laughs> Everybody goes to the playground. We become, we become doers and appliers, maybe of what's been taught, right? Uh, but in our church, uh, at the at the end of the service, I try to do this every week because I've learned that if I don't do it every week, uh, people stop doing this. But I, uh, but I tell them, listen, before you leave, before I give the bene- benediction, let me encourage you. Remember, before you leave this campus today, I want you to find someone. And whether you know them or not, preferably if you don't know them, get to know them. But walk up to them and say, hey, can I ask you a question? Um, what do you have coming up this week that concerns you most? I tell them, don't say, how can I pray for you? Nobody knows how to answer that question. But they've already been thinking about their week coming up. Or it's either the thing you're most concerned about or the thing you're most excited about. And then when you hear what they say, just say, hey, can I pray about that? Or can I give thanks for that? And what are you doing? You're ministering to one another. You're teaching one another. You're encouraging one another. You're blessing one another. You're helping one another grow. This is what the Apostle Paul wants us to do. And not just what I just described, but there's 10,000 ways for us to minister to one another. So what's the elder's responsibility in the local church? The elder's responsibility in the local church is to equip the saints for ministry. And not everybody is going to be a biblical counselor. Not everybody, not everybody should be a formally a biblical counselor. But there are things that you can do to make your church a little stronger and grow a little deeper and to bring people to Christ. So... The primary way membership works to build up the body of Christ and bringing it to maturity is through the wise and loving counsel or or through wise and loving counseling conversations. There we are. I love that phrase, uh, 
loving, counseling conversations. That's what it is. This, these are just conversations you're having with people where you're bringing the word, of the, where, where they welcome you to say things to them that might not be appropriate just to say to them without them giving you permission. I assume if they're coming to me for counsel, I can say whatever I think needs to be said as long as it's biblical. And when that happens, boy, people grow, people change. Uh, and so biblical counseling is profoundly effective in the local church. The church can provide well-trained counselors. The elders and pastors have their training funded by the church. And lay people are also trained by and through the church. Um, I know there's a little bit of an expense in... Uh, and first of all, getting your training here, right? And by the way, I think we, we charge like half, half or less. Uh, if you were to go to Indiana, you'd be paying double. Uh, some of these other places, you'd be paying double. We really try to keep the prices down here. Um, uh, and, and you're going to have to pay something for the exam, and you're going to have to pay something uh, when you get into phase three with your um uh, for the 50 hours of supervision. By the way, that's the crown jewel of this whole thing. Um, and uh, there is going to be some expense involved. However, it's totally worth it. But if you were to go to a secular training institution, you would be paying a ton of money. In fact, some of the things that I'm going to describe here in the next couple of minutes um, are, are beyond the pale of anyone's being able to afford and that's the glory of the church. It's one of the glorious things about the church. The church can provide... Let's see. The church can provide context. Did we already say that? Okay. The church can... Prov- uh, pro- uh, biblical counseling. Let's see. The church can provide well-trained counselors. Uh, lay people are also trained through the church. The church can provide context for people to worship. The counselor can teach a person how to worship God on on their own, but it is uh, a powerful experience to worship corporately with the whole body of Christ. Let me tell you what we're talking about here. Uh, we tell people, in fact, we just made this policy. Now, I know this church has been ahead of us on this, um, that if you come for counseling, we expect you to be at our church or demonstrate that you are a part of a solid biblical church. And if you're not, and most people who come for counseling from the community, they're in terrible churches. And um, and we say, listen, uh, we don't charge for your counseling, uh, for the counseling that you're going to receive. And we may meet with you 13, 15 weeks. You can imagine how, uh, how much that would be. I mean, your typical counseling hour, uh, if you were to go to a secular counselor, would be minimally uh, 140 uh, pushing $200. Um, Listen, we're not going to charge you any of that. The only thing we ask is that you're here. Just come. And we want you to be in a small group. And we want you to be with God's people. Because I tell you, we don't have time for this, but uh, um, I think it's the ministry of the church, the love of the church on the unbelievers who come. It has a more profound, far more profound effect on salvation and sanctification than anything else we can do. The church is critical. 
I mean, if you have opportunity to minister to people outside the church, then by all means do it. But I'm telling you, it's nowhere near as powerful. Uh, I could give you examples of that, but we don't have time. The church can provide that kind of context. Uh, the church can provide fellowship beyond uh, that of one's counselor. Often people get into trouble by isolating themselves from others. In a good local church, isolation is overcome by true fellowship. Biblical fellowship offers counselees opportunity to study the word, to pray with one another, and to build the church through friendships outside the counseling room with people who believe the Bible as as their counselor does. The church can provide people who can counsel on specific issues. Am I ahead of myself or am I behind myself? Okay, the church can provide fellowship beyond that of uh, the counselor. Um, the church can provide uh, people who can counsel on specific issues. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to keep moving because I'm, I'm about out of time. The church can provide serious accountability. Now, on this, I, I want to I hit the brakes on this for just a minute. Uh, once in a while, we'll have someone who's addicted to drugs or has got a really serious, serious problem that they need tons of accountability. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you one case where a woman was severely depressed and all kinds of bad stuff was going on in her mind. And uh, she was from our church. Uh, at one point, she was a a, fem- a woman's a women's a ministry leader, and something happened, and I don't know what, but uh, she got really, really depressed, and she eventually got suicidal, and this is over a period of, of years, really, and um, and we had ten people watching over her, ten designated people. That's not my phone. That, I mean, it is my phone, but it's <laughs> it's my alarm. So, um, do I not know how to turn this off? Cancel, cancel, cancel. Um, so we had ten people, and mostly women, a couple of men, and they all knew her schedule. She had a very regimented schedule, things she did during the day. And, um, and all ten of those people knew what that... Well, her pattern was. One day she deviated from the pattern. One of the ladies noticed and didn't say anything. She should have, right? I don't remember who that was anyway. But, uh, and then another lady realized she deviated. And they went, hmm. She started making phone calls. Anybody seen Sally? Nope. Uh, she deviated. Uh, so a couple of people went over to her apartment. Knocked on the door, no answer. They look down in the parking lot, there's her car. They start calling her, she doesn't answer. Uh, she's got to be in the apartment. So they call the apartment company manager, and they said, uh, we can't open the door. It's illegal. They called the police. They said, we can't open the door. Uh, by some act of, of faith, the manager of the apartment took the risk and opened the door after much pleading on the part of you know six or eight of these ten people who were watching over her and finally got the door open and they went in and there she was laying on the floor surrounded by empty pill bottles now can you imagine uh, what would happen if she hadn't had that kind of accountability but imagine this how much would it cost to have that kind of care 
How much would it cost? Either a residency program? I mean, it would be impossible for a secular institution to do this as a non-residency kind of treatment plan. It'd just be enormously expensive. I mean, it'd be more than anyone could afford. And yet, the church can do it and does do it frequently. Why? Um, Because we're serving the Lord. We're ministering his word. And we're not... Uh, we're not concerned about uh, getting paid for those things. So, um, and then there's a section on church discipline, and there's lots of things here. I'll just click through that. Um, so uh, the reason I gave you notes that were so comprehensive was uh, because I wanted you to leave with all of the essentials that you need to, uh, to answer this question on the exam. There's a lot more that can be said on this about church discipline. If anybody has a question, uh, you can ask now. We may be able to, to squeeze that in. We are about one minute over. Any questions? Yes. Lee. You mean, okay, so are you talking about the scenario where we have ten people helping? No, I'm talking where someone pleads a case or represents. Here's okay. an issue going on in my life. Okay. And they get five different opinions on how to deal with that. Uh-huh. Often, many of which have no biblical foundation. Okay. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with, uh, we've got a counselee. I'm just restating the question. Um we have a counselee who's getting opinions from a variety of sources about what they should do about their problem uh, and various degrees of uh, truth and uh, whether or not it's biblical, right? And so uh, when we find out that that's happening, we tell them to stop. Uh, and if we find out that, uh, that someone in the church, like one of our female leaders might be, uh, might have heard about the problem and, and not knowing that there's counseling going on or maybe not knowing that there's a problem with giving her opinion, uh, we will approach her and say, hey, I uh, just want you to know that uh, this this dear lady is in counseling and uh, uh, we would love for you to encourage her, um, but we want to caution you about giving her counsel because if you are counseling her uh, sooner probably sooner than later, you're going to say something that's contrary to what her counselor is saying. Uh, There's already confusion here. That's why she's here for counseling. And she doesn't need any more confusion in her life. And so by all means, encourage her um, and pray for her. Send her notes, send her texts and say, I love you. Here's a text I was thinking about for you today. You know, whatever, be involved. um, But please don't give her counsel. So sometimes you just have to be direct with people. And usually they, they go, oh, of course, of course. I just didn't think of that. So anything else? All right, you guys. Are you happy to be in your final week of training? Or you you just you just can't stand the thought of giving it up, right? Too much writing to do. Well, okay. Well, you guys are going to do great. I know it. And... Uh, uh, thank you for all of your efforts in, in uh, becoming biblical counselors. I hope that you will push through 
and get to the end and join us in this ministry. I remember being where you are, not in this room, but um, uh, but going through track one and track two and, uh, and then following up with that. Uh, it's a really exciting thing that you're doing, and I know you guys can't wait to get out there, right, and start uh, doing counseling. Let me just make one statement about that, uh, and this may sound controversial, and I don't mean it to be, uh, but don't, if you feel like you've got a pretty good grasp of the Word of God, right, don't wait to start counseling. Uh, maybe the better way to do it would be, uh, to approach it would be to say, um, go to your pastor and say, listen, uh, there's, I know there's a lady here who really needs a discipleship and probably some counseling, and I'm learning how to bring the Word of God to bear on people's lives. you mind if I do some ministry over there? I mean, I'm not fully trained or anything, but I, I probably am not going to do any harm. <laughs> and uh, just find a way to get busy with people. Encounter them and, and get in, involved in their lives. You call it discipleship, and uh, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing. So don't wait, because what will happen is... If you're counseling while you're doing these things, you'll go, oh, that now makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. Or uh, I need to uh, I need to, to go back and, and ask myself, you know, what's the answer to this question? What, how do I resolve this problem? And now you're, you're really in the laboratory of uh, learning. And so uh, if you know the Word of God pretty well, Get busy ministering the Word of God. Don't wait until you're done some certification. Certification is great, and we want you to do that. Um, but uh, but don't don't wait unless your pastor tells you to. Okay. That's right. Paul knew nothing of certification. <laughs> and uh, and that's what we did too. Uh, I had my young associate with me, and I was learning about biblical counseling, and I wasn't certified yet. And. Uh, and so we started certifying, I mean, we started counseling this one guy. And and we jokingly, half-jokingly say, yeah, we together we counseled that one guy. And uh, that was years ago. We think he's still in jail. <laughs> it, it didn't go very well, but people found out they could. We started having some success. And next thing we know, we get another phone call. Can you counsel? And... And I looked at Brent. You, you know Brent, right? Brent, Brent teaches some of these lectures, too. Brent Osterberg. He's got a beard and no hair. And uh, he was, I discipled him for 10 years. He was uh, my associate pastor for most of, the, most of that time. And I said, Brent, I know you're, <laughs> you're not trained, but you did go to seminary. I, I assume you know the Bible. You're going to have to take that person, because I don't have time to take this person and that person. And then it started to multiply, and we needed more people and... And uh, wonderful things happened. But we, we, we felt like infants, you know, in understanding how to bring the Word of God to bear, even though we had learned a lot of theology over the years. So uh, I'm just telling you, if, if, uh, if your pastor will let you just dive in with someone, just dive in. If you have questions, ask your pastor, and uh, it'll be great. All right. I'm probably going to get in trouble for that, but that's all right. <laughs>